You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. The Bible begins and ends with food. Some of God's first words to humans is an invitation to eat. Uh, The first uh, sin in the Bible is over a forbidden meal. God's first miracle was in response to a catering crisis at a wedding. And Jesus' final meal is over a symbol-laden meal that explains his life and purpose. And God's great vision for a new world is pictured as a full and lavish banquet. Food is so central to the Bible, it's also a fun and unique way to see what it means. Throughout these next four sessions, we're going to be exploring what the gospel means. And the gospel is this, in short, that God has saved us from our sin in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. It's that first word, God, and us, that we get to explore in more depth in this first session. Uh, Each session will take the form of me explaining a little bit of my own faith journey and also then looking at the Bible to see what it says about that vital part of the story. Meal one, God and creation. I never really grew up in a Christian home. I only went to church a few times, you know, kind of over Christmas and Easter. Uh, So I would, I never would have called myself a Christian. And I can't say that the idea that God created everything around us really had a big impact on my life. And that is until I started thinking about what is right and wrong. And I realized that actually the idea that God made everything has a massive impact on what I can say is right or what I can say is wrong and whether there's such a thing as universal human rights. But more on that later. Part one, God and creation. And God said to them, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of heavens, and to everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Some of God's first words to humans are an invitation to eat. The diet was to be vegetarian. Uh, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. I've given you every tree with seed in its fruit. They were to eat from the land itself. Actually, these weren't the first words. The first words of God to humanity was an invitation to have sex and make babies. Indeed, this creation started through sex and gardening. One could think of worse ways to start a universe. But in order to understand ourselves, we have to understand God. 
uh, in the Bible. We can't just understand us by ourselves. We, ha- we can only do that in the context of who God is and the purpose and work that he's created for us to do. The first words of the Bible are this. In the beginning, God. When people describe God, both Christians and non-Christians, sometimes I find myself going, I don't believe in that God either. Because the kind of God that they're describing is kind of like Santa Claus. Slightly more jolly, slightly less powerful, but still in that basic business of giving good things to good children and bad things to bad children. I find myself thinking like that every time they start talking about God as if he's something that can be discovered in this creation. If we just looked in the right places or we just did the right experiments, we would be able to find God. But God is not like that. In the beginning, God. According to the Bible, there are only two things in this world, God and everything he's created. God is not in the creation. He's outside of it. He made it. And through him, the whole creation lives and moves and has its being. Take Shakespeare and Hamlet, for example. Uh, If you go down to your local bookstore, maybe you got a copy yourself. Uh, You could find a copy of the book Hamlet. And if you look up the beginning and you look to the content of characters, you might be able to find uh, a list of the characters that are there, such as Polinius, there's Gertrude, even Hamlet himself. Indeed, there are more obscure characters like Francisco. And you might be a Francisco agnostic or a Francisco atheist until you can find evidence of Francisco in the play itself. And you would search every chapter, you'd search every act to find evidence that he's there. But where's Shakespeare? Shakespeare is not in the play. Shakespeare is not in Hamlet. But through Shakespeare, Hamlet has its very life, being, living, and has its breath. Shakespeare isn't in the play because through him, Hamlet was created. And indeed, God is much more like that. God is whom this whole creation lives and moves and has its being. He's not in the play. He created the play and everything within it. Part two, creation. The second player in this account is creation itself. Verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before the creation was brought into order, it was just chaos. And God's act of creation was to bring crisp lines and clear boundaries and bright colours to separate it from the muck. Indeed, that's what God is doing. On days one to two and three, he creates context. He creates the sky, he creates the waters, he creates the land. And then on days four to six, he creates things to rule those contexts. He creates the sun, moon and stars. He creates the sea and sea animals and everything that lives in the ocean and he creates animals who live on land and humanity. God in days one to three creates contexts, and in four and six, he creates things to rule those contexts. 
It's like the meal that we would share over creation. The meal that we typically share is a lush green soup together uh, with bread and with ice cream afterwards. But they're just merely context. So the thing I remember about the soup, the stuff I remember about the bread and the ice cream, isn't the soup and the bread itself. It's the incredible bacon and the croutons that go all over my soup. It's the incredible butter and the salt that you place all over it. Uh, it's the caramel sauce. It's the salted caramel sauce or the chocolate toppings. There are contexts and there are things which rule the context and those things that rule it are its glory. They are the things that are worth remembering. There is order out of chaos and there are things made to rule each of those contexts and deserve their own glory. Reading the early chapters of Genesis inevitably brings up the question about how does the modern findings of science interact with what we read about in Genesis. And there are three ways to answer that kind of question. The first way is to say that science and Genesis say different things about the same thing. So they're both talking about the same thing that is the creation of the universe, but they actually say different things. So if you look at the scientific record, it says that the universe was made in billions of years. But if you look at Genesis, it actually says that it were made actually only in six days. Obviously, there is disagreement. And funny enough, that's how Professor Richard Dawkins from Oxford University would say that's how you're to read Genesis. The second way to answer that question is to say that they actually say the same thing about the same thing. So they're both talking about the origins of the universe. But if you look closely at Genesis, it's not talking about six literal days of creation. Actually, they're talking about six periods of time. And those, that order of time and creation actually lines up with what we find in the scientific record. So there's no need for conflict because they actually say the same thing about the same thing. They both agree on how the universe was created. Or the third option, and this is the one that I go for, you could say that Genesis and science are actually talking about different things. Science is brilliant to understand the what and the how, but Genesis is brilliant to understand the why. Take the Mona Lisa, for example. If you went to the Mona Lisa in Paris at the Louvre and you looked at its portrait, if you were a scientist, you could look at that portrait and go, gee, look at that exact color. I could reproduce it with exactly these paints on that kind of canvas. I can see that that color is slightly different shade from this one. You would look at its what and its how. You'd be considering what kind of paint and what kind of color they've used to bring out that kind of portrait. But if you were an artist and you looked at the Mona Lisa, you wouldn't be looking at its color composition per se. You'd be more interested on why. Why is a Mona Lisa like this? How does it affect me? What is its purpose? Why was it made? And in the same way, science is looking at the creation of a universe from a scientific perspective, the what and the how did this happen? 
where Genesis looks at the creation of the universe like an artist. What is its purpose? Why is it here? Why, God? Now, I go with the third option because of different reasons. Uh, when I look at the original account of Genesis in the Hebrew language, to me, that looks far more like poetry than it does narrative. Also, uh, this view that Genesis is more like an artist's account of the creation of the world didn't come on board at early enlightenment, but actually did start in the early church, most notably with St. Augustine, uh, who was a great thinker in the very early church. Now, why is this important? This is important because if Genesis articulates the why something was made, then Christians have a very strong logical foundation for why something is right and why something is wrong. When we look at the world around us and we look at it and try and understand it, we are only understanding what it is and what it can describe. But from that description, you can't get what something ought to be. Uh, that's a time-old problem of the is-ought problem or the fact-value distinction. From facts, you can't then gain a moral value. Uh, Sam Harris, a renowned atheist writer, is in his book, The Moral Landscape, that science is producing closer and closer approximations of what the good in life is. But he still can't get over the idea by David Hume from the ancient century, the, the non-Christian philosopher, that there's still a gap between what we see, what is, and what ought to be. Now, I'm not saying that people who don't believe in God can't be good people. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, I've Many, I have many sisters of which you'll find out about all about in our meals. And I have two of my sisters. One of them literally worked for the United Nations. The other one literally worked for the World Health Organization. They don't believe in the Christian God. Of course you can be good without believing in God. But what it does mean is that actually Christians have a very strong logical foundation for that feeling we all have inside of us. That feeling that there's such a thing as right and wrong, that, that feeling that says that all humans should have access to certain rights and privileges, that feeling that says actually some things are just evil and some things are just good. And if you have a God who made all things with a purpose, then you have a very strong logical reason on why some things ought to be the case. More than just democratic agreement, more than just my feeling is better than your feeling, and more than this is just a moral decision of our time, Christians actually have an objective, ahistorical reason across all time on why something ought to be. Part three, us. What is a human? Well, in one way, you could just say that a human is a brain on legs that lives roughly to 80 or 100 years and then dies. Uh, but that's to look at it kind of like a scientist. It's not actually to look at it like an art critic. To look at it like an artist, you go, wow, humans are amazing creatures. They discover incredible feats of knowledge. 
They act sometimes in such unfathomable kindness. They create things of such beauty that you cannot just stop and go, gee, that is amazing. And yet at the same time, uh, we're disappointing. We let each other down. And sometimes we're just downright evil. And all accounts of humanity, of who we are, must account for both of those things. It must account for the holy and the horror, the human and the animal, the beauty and the beast. In the Bible, humans are made from the dust of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Bible says that we're made from dust. In fact, the name Adam is fascinating because it's not only a name, but it's also a title and description. Adama in Hebrew means dust. And so the Adam means literally the dustling. We're earthlings. We're dustlings. We're creatures. We look like we're from around this place because we're made from the kind of stuff of this place. And the Bible never loses focus that we are made of dust. Psalm 103 verse 14 says that God remembers our frame and he knows that we are but dust. To be a dustling, to be a creature, means that inevitably we're limited. We're not gods. We can't fly. Uh, We can't achieve everything we set our mind to. We can't always do things as we want We need to sleep around eight hours a day. We need to eat three times a day. We still need fluids. We're limited creatures. But that's not a bug. That's a feature. One of my son's favorite songs to get to sleep, who's two years old, is R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly. Now, we can't fly, but that's okay. We're limited creatures that depend on God for all things. That's not a truth to be figured out. That's a reality to be embraced. We're just but dust. We are from this earth. We are limited creatures. We're from around here. And it's one of the frank but joyful, liberating truths of Christianity. Now, that's not all what God says about us. What else does he say? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, Take a coin. This coin is a 20 cent Australian coin. On one side, it has its value. And on the other side, it has an image. Now, why is that image there? The image is there for a largely symbolic reason now, but it's meant to remind us of the realm of the sovereign. So on this coin is the leader of the Commonwealth, Queen Elizabeth II. And every time I look at this coin, I'm meant to be reminded that she is my ruler and that I am under her majesty. God created humans in his image. So in the same way, when all of creation looked at humanity, it would go, Gee, you're incredible. And if you're like that, then your God must be amazing. In some way, you could say that humanity 
is God's argument for the existence of God. The whole creation was meant to look at us and go, wow, your God must be incredible. But if that was our job, then how are we going with it? A French theologian called John Calvin once described humanity as fallen monarchs with amnesia. We are like monarchs sometimes. Sometimes we do such incredible things. Uh, it's like as if a friend of yours suddenly remembered how to speak in perfect and fluent Latin, neither you or him nor remember wherever you learned it. We do such incredible acts of kindness. We discover things of such knowledge that you just can't help wonder, wow. And your response almost seems like praise and worship sometimes. But other times we do have amnesia. Humans are sometimes heroic and angelic, but other times we are frequently disappointing and we don't live up to what we had expected. Part four, the challenge of the Christian faith. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and you give to God what is God's. If what the Bible says is true, then it's true in a very real way, in a way that affects you. And there are some things are true that won't affect you. Like two plus two equals four doesn't really affect you, though it's true. Uh, the fact that my family does the beep test every Christmas day is true, but doesn't affect you even though how crazy and ridiculous that is. But if what the Bible says is true, then it's true in a way that actually means something for your life. Jesus was once confronted by religious authorities and they asked him about whether they should pay their taxes to the Caesar, the Roman ruler of the world. He was confronted and asked whether inhabitants of first century uh, Palestine should pay their taxes to the Roman uh, ruler of that land. And Jesus took one of their coins and said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus said, well, again, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Whose image is this? Caesar. His image on it is his claim to it. This is his. And in the same way, whose image is on us? On us is God's image. And his image on us, he says, claim on us. We are his. Over the next meal, we're going to be thinking more about what happens when God's image bearers start their insurrection against their God. But for now, here are the take-home points from meal one, creation. God created an ordered good creation. There are only two things in this world, God and the things which he have made. He made us in his image and his image on us is his claim on us. We are his.